This is They Create Worlds, Episode 16, Early Computer Game Platforms, The Trinity, and The Disciples. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeff, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today we're going to cover something that we don't normally cover. Computers. Specifically, computers in the home. That's right. Obviously, this is a video game and computer game history podcast, so the focus is, of course, on the games themselves and on the dedicated platforms like your consoles, but... It's impossible to understand what happened in computer game history without understanding the platforms that were available for computer games and why certain platforms won out over certain other platforms and how that influenced the types of games that people were able to play. And we haven't really talked so much about the computer angle of this. We've talked a lot about home consoles. We've talked a lot about the arcade. And we sort of briefly touched about the computer aspect of it, usually in general broad strokes, but we haven't really gone into specifics so much, and I believe that's going to be the subject today. Absolutely. All right, so where do we want to start off here? I know that there's things from the 70s where it started getting computers that were home, and then we had computers that continued on into the 80s and so on and so forth. And we had sort of like it really took off with what's referred to as the Holy Trinity, the Trash 80, the Commodore PET, and the Apple II. And I'm sure many people have played around with at least one, two, or more of all three of those. But there was something that came before that that started entering the homes, right? Well, yes, a little bit. So obviously computing as a general concept goes all the way back to the 19 late 1930s, early 1940s, if you're talking about digital computing. Obviously, we're not going to get into all that early stuff. There was some game stuff going on in the very early days in the 50s, especially in the 60s and the early 70s that we can cover at another time. And that stuff wasn't actually in the home. Exactly. There might have been a few well-heeled engineers that brought home uh, Data General Nova or a PDP-11 mini-computer and had it sitting out in their garage in the late 60s or early 70s. But practically speaking... It was all institutional computing in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and early 70s. Which is why we haven't really covered that, especially when we went with the arcades that went all the way far back, because computers just weren't really something that consumers, the average person, could get their access to because they were so expensive and so big. That's right. There was a little bit of computing going on because by the end of this period, when you had computers becoming cheaper and you had time-sharing systems becoming more advanced, Computers were starting to infiltrate the schools a bit, where a school would have a terminal or two hooked up to a remote computer that they had access to via time sharing and Mm -hmm. might have some of the brighter students at math be part of a computer course or computer club and get to do some work with a computer. A guy named uh, Bill Gates had a chance to do some of that when he was a student during this time period. And And he never went on to do anything important at all? No. And certainly university students had access to computers as time sharing became more widespread. But the general public didn't. So while some games were being played on these computers, they weren't commercial products. They weren't spreading beyond a very small group of people. 
So obviously to get computers into the home, you had to break the price barrier. And the way you broke the price barrier to not put too fine a point on was the microprocessor. Microprocessor appears in the early 1970s. The first Intel processor really capable of doing anything, the Intel 8080, comes out in 1974. And that's what really sets in motion the idea that you can actually have a computer in the home. And even in these very early days, you couldn't have a computer in the home that could do much useful. But you had a hobbyist community that Mm. liked assembling their own electronics, whether those be do-it-yourself calculator kits, do-it-yourself ham radio kits, or even do-it-yourself television kits, some of the kind of stuff that Heath would put out, Zenith Heath, you know, like Heath kits and whatnot. Oh, yeah, that's a very popular brand. It used to be that you had a magazine called Popular Electronics that used to be the really big thing for anyone who wanted to play around with electronics. They had kits on there that you could order for ham radio, just doing things with your television, any kind of electronics. It's kind of sad that that kind of thing isn't so much a big thing today, but back then it was really, uh, hey, you're playing with this future and you can do this stuff at home. Exactly. And it was through Popular Electronics that the home computer revolution was basically born because the readership of Popular Electronics was very interested to get their hands on their own microprocessor kits, essentially, once the microprocessor came around. And so the Popular Electronics was getting many letters to the editor saying, hey, when are you going to feature some kind of computer kit? And so Popular Electronics put out the call to its regular stable of contributors, and it was Ed Roberts down in... New Mexico that came up with the solution, which was the Altair computer. And the Altair was a very limited machine. It was basically just a box with very little memory and switches on the front and blinking lights. There was no display. There was no operating system. There was no programming language. You didn't even have like a printer or something for displays. Pretty much the only way you got output out of that thing was blinking lights. That's exactly correct. In its base format, you had the switches on the front, and you would enter your program in hex by flipping on and off ones and zeros, and you would enter your entire program in one bit at a time. Which is time-consuming, to say the least. And you couldn't store these programs, so if you lost power in the middle, you had to start all over again because there was no memory. So you could enter in your whole program, and all you'd really get out of it was blinking lights. Now, that's in the basic configuration. Mm -hmm. The good news was is that they made this computer very expandable. They put in a bus that had a lot of expansion slots where you could plug daughter boards into the computer that would interface with it. Mm -hmm. And their... Bus actually became the standard for the first few years of the microcomputer industry. It became called the S100 bus, and there were a bunch of Altair clones, essentially, that used the same bus structure and so could accept much of the same stuff. And so, that is the one that Popular Electronics put out. Was the Altair, that's correct. Do you happen to know which uh, issue that was? It was the uh, January 1975 issue of Popular Electronics was the issue that it premiered in. The January issue actually came out in December because of the way publishing lags. And so that was their biggest issue of the year because it was the holiday issue. Mm. And so that's the issue that appeared in, in the very beginning of 1975. I think what they did, it, I'll have to check this later on, but uh, there's partial note for me, and I'll probably keep keep this in with uh, for the podcast if this true, turns out to be true. But I think I have a bookmark where they put all of the digital versions out for free of popular electronics, and I'll try to find that particular 
issue and put that in the show notes. Very good. Popular Electronics wasn't selling it. They were just doing a write-up on it and having advertisements for it. It was actually right. Ed Roberts's company in New Mexico that was selling it. And it took much longer for those units to actually start shipping. It wasn't actually ready to go right. in January 1975, but that's when it was announced. This is a computer that really did nobody any kind of good. But because the hobbyist community has just as much fun trying to put a machine together and figure out how a machine works as they do actually doing anything useful with it, this was perfect for that yeah. hobbyist community. It teaches you the basics of how a computer works. You got power coming in. How do you have voltages changes going on in order to create things that add ones and zeros together in order to have registers and in order to store information, have a processor that takes that information and adds things together, adding registers from this, moving that off, and how do you do, make all that work? And this really exemplifies it for people. Right, and that's exactly what these hobbyists wanted to do, so they were thrilled. It was never a practical computer, and it was never certainly a mass-market computer, though it did sell maybe 10,000 or so systems, so it got some penetration, and people heard about it. It started creating a buzz. And especially at that time, 10,000 is a lot. Absolutely. And over time, it became more sophisticated because of these expansion slots, so you could hook up a display to it once a company created a display daughter board. Mm -hmm. You could do more sophisticated programs with it once there were memory expansions put in. And, of course, you could program with it without using those flipping switches once somebody put a proper programming language in place for it. In this case, BASIC, which was hmm. the ideal language because it, it doesn't take up as much memory and it's very simple. Now, it has a lot of problems. It's very slow. Because it's so simple, it doesn't work very well. I don't think BASIC is a compiled language. Is BASIC a compiled language? My only experience with BASIC is Visual BASIC. Yeah, that's um, not that much later. So I'm not sure offhand. I'd have to look that one up. But yeah, it's BASIC is a very slow language, which is why it's not ever used in professional programming. But it's so easy to learn that when you're a hobbyist, it's a great first programming language to learn the fundamentals of programming and just get something on the computer. Right. So once BASIC was on the system, it became a little more utilitarian. And who provided BASIC for the Altair? It was a couple of Harvard-based guys named Bill Gates and Paul Allen. Hmm. And their new company, Microsoft. That also didn't go on to do anything major. Right. Of course, they started as a programming language company. We think of them today as this OS company, which they are. Right. Microsoft's start was in languages. And basically, no pun intended, what they did was create BASIC for the Altair. They had the first BASIC, so that went out with that system. And from there, they started providing the BASICs for every other computer that came along. And then they expanded into other languages as well, but BASIC was kind of their bread and butter. So virtually every computer that shipped in the late 1970s and early 1980s, which is a couple of exceptions, had a version of Microsoft BASIC built into it. And that was how Microsoft got its start and got fairly big in the computing world. But, of course, it was operating systems with IBM that then Right, once created. they took QDOS and made that MS-DOS and so on and so forth, the legend goes on. Right. So the Altair got people a little excited about computers, and there was a little bit of game programming on it. There was a very basic chess game called Micro Chess. There was kind of a target shooting game on it, very primitive. But it wasn't really a game system. It was basically a system that you experimented with. 
you couldn't do much practical with it. And there were some follow-up computers that were a little better. Kind of this S100 bus created a standard. Mm. And another company called MSI came along that targeted businesses a little more closely and worked with Gary Kildall to license his CPM operating system to mm -hmm. run a disk drive in conjunction with the computer. And you kind of had this S100 family of computers that made a little bit of penetration into people that were interested in trying to use a microcomputer in a business setting. They weren't very good computers in a business setting, but they were the best you had in terms of microcomputers. But they were never a factor in games because they were just way, way, way too primitive. So what really started the kind of computer game thing was the release of the Trinity in 1977. The Trash 80, the Apple II, and a Commodore PET. That's right. And they're called the Trinity just because they all came out in the same year, and they were the first computers that were really fully assembled, non-kit computers that essentially worked just out of the box. All the earlier computers were kits. Even the Apple I, which was slightly more assembled, still required you to get in there and hook a few things up yourself once you bought it. At least in my school back in the early 90s, there were still a few schools out there that had Apple IIs that you learned to do computer stuff on, and the penetration of these systems was pretty prolific. Oh, yes, especially the Apple II. I mean, they cornered the education market. Of course, the computers we were using in the early 90s were the Apple IIe, which was the last iteration, well, the last iteration that mattered, of the Apple II platform. It's not the same computer that was released in 1977 as the Apple II. Mm -hmm. There are improvements, more memory and a few other things that are a little better. But, right, it's the same basic architecture, you know, surviving from 1977 all the way into the early 90s, which is when they finally discontinued it. Yeah, which makes it pretty freaking prolific. Um, I don't know if the uh, Commodore PET or the uh, Trash 80 had that level of penetration. I think those two more or less died out in the 80s, right? Right. I mean, well, the Commodore PET even before that. The Commodore PET was in some ways the most limited machine of, of the three. It was largely targeted towards business users mm -hmm. rather than kind of home users. It only had a maximum of 8K of memory. It shipped with 4K. It only ever got up to 8K. It's display... And that's kilobytes, not megabytes or gigabytes. That's kilobytes. That's right. Its display was fairly limited. It was a text-only display. Don't even think it was an 80-column display. I think it was just a 40-column display, which is uh, not good if you're trying to do word processing, which kind of yeah. requires an 80-column display. It's really quite a limited machine and fairly expensive considering how limited it was. It cost $800 for a machine that really didn't do a great amount. It was integrated in a very nice package, which kind of made it friendly to businesses that didn't necessarily want to poke around at the various parts of their computer too much. And so it had a little penetration into business markets, especially in Europe. But it was really a non-factor in terms of games. Now, the Trash 80, the TRS-80, was actually the best-selling of the three in the 1970s. Apple has done a very good job of kind of rewriting history when it comes to the Apple II. Mm -hmm. They always talk about how the Apple II represented the dawn of the home computer era, 
and quickly rocketed to the top of the industry and became the standard and all of this. None of that actually happened. Well, there's one thing that is true. It really did mark the start of the home computer era. It was probably the first of the Trinity to shed. Mm -hmm. It's difficult back then when release dates didn't matter too much to the general press or whatever. It's very difficult to pinpoint when these computers came out. The PET was announced first. It was announced in January, but it didn't start shipping till very late in the year. And the TRS-80 started shipping kind of at the end of the summer. The Apple II was launched in April of 1977. So it's the first one out of the gate. It was the first one out of the gate. It was not the best selling, though, because you are talking with the Apple II about a very, very expensive machine, like $1,200, $1,300 expensive machine in 1977 money. And that's a lot. That is an awful lot. We, we think that $1,300 is a lot for a higher-end gaming system today. Imagine spending that amount of money today back in 1970 when... That'd be equivalent to something very expensive now. Exactly. So that's uh, just a non-starter in terms of market penetration. So the TRS-80 had kind of two things going for it. First of all, it was the cheapest. It sold for $600 with a monitor, even less without a monitor. And it was also the one with the broadest distribution because they were in the 3,500 or so Radio Shack stores because there weren't very many computer stores at this time. There are a few that had kind of started to develop. You didn't have many outlets to buy a computer. I mean, you mostly did it through mail order and whatnot, essentially. There was no Best Buy. There was no Circuit City. There was no place you went to buy your computer. Exactly, and there weren't even specialized computer store chains yet. There were a few early computer stores in existence around the country, but Computerland, for instance, which would develop in this time period, wasn't a nationwide chain or anything yet. So there were very few places. Once the Trinity kind of took hold, the amount of places to buy computers did slowly expand. But the TRS-80 was the only one of the computers that had a national distribution system already in place because it was Radio Shack's computer. It was sold in every Radio Shack in the country. Radio Shack was already established as the electronics place. That's where you went to to get your ham radio stuff. That's where you went to to get stuff for your television. If you're an electronics hobbyist, that's where you went to get parts in order to get anything you wanted to make. Exactly. So Radio Shack had a legitimacy about it, and that legitimacy carried over to the TRS-80. So this is the computer that the public really latched onto initially because it was affordable, it had the Radio Shack brand behind it, and it was readily available in stores. So that computer really dominated the 70s. It was selling a couple hundred thousand computers when Apple was selling fewer than 10,000 computers a year in the first couple of years. It wasn't until 1983 that Apple sold its millionth Apple II computer. So it was a really, really slow burn. And the TRS-80 was the computer that had the initial lead. But it was the Apple II that really became the premier game platform. Which is kind of odd, because I would think with the Trash-80... You had such great penetration to the home market, and I remember hearing all these people talk about all these great games on the TRS-80 and all the kind of things that you could do on it, but what made Apple so much better? Well, first of all, the TRS-80 
was a character-based graphic system only. Oh. Yeah, only character-based graphics. It so could no bitmaps, do... no graphics. You couldn't see any real pictures. If you were making a picture, you had to do it by ASCII art. Exactly. And I think there might have been a, a couple of custom characters that you could fiddle around with as well. But basically, right, it's just all character-based graphics. So you're looking at text adventures or you're looking at very, very primitive character-based graphics. One of the early role-playing games, Temple of Apshai, was a TRS-80 game first. But it was basically using characters to draw dungeons and to represent objects and whatnot. It wasn't Sort pictures. of like hack. Or right. what is NetHack now? You can actually download this for free now. It's called NetHack, and it's a simple, small little program. They actually there's a group that's still dedicated to this, and they still program it. And you can actually have this text-based adventure where you're the at sign, and you have your dog that I think is some other character, and then you go around this dungeon that's drawn in ASCII art. Exactly. And so that was one strike against it. Second strike against it is it wasn't nearly as easily expandable a system as the Apple II was. They didn't put a lot of slots on the computer itself. One of the great things about the Apple II, which went very much back to Steve Wozniak's kind of hacker ethic, this idea that what the original person does with a piece of hardware or software isn't the be-all or end-all of what you do with that system. You put something basic out and let other people play with it and improve it. Because of this very hackerish ethic, the Apple II had a good deal of slots, just like the Altair, where you could plug additional boards in and get additional functionality. The TRS-80 didn't really have that built in. You had to buy a separate piece of expansion hardware to plug into your TRS-80 and then plug expansions into that. And so it was a very unwieldy process to try to get that computer to become a more sophisticated system. Think of it this way. And most of our computers now, you have slots in order to add new functionality to it. You can add in expansion cards to give you a TV tuner, uh, extra networking for wireless if you only have hardwired, a better sound card, stuff like that. In the Apple II, you already had those slots in there, so you're only spending, for sake of argument, $50 per card in order to add new functionality. With the TRS-80, you're going to have to spend $200 in order to get a separate box, which then makes it have a bigger footprint on your desk in order to have those slots that you then have to spend the $50 on the card in order to expand that. Right. So it was a lot less expandable system. And as a result, it didn't have all of the features. It largely remained a cassette-based system, for instance, in terms of input. There was a disk drive. But a lot of people just kind of stuck with the basic cassette tape as a data storage device. And we're talking about the old style cassette tape that you would normally record your voice or record music on. Exactly. We're not talking fancy DAT tapes or something like that. We're just talking about your basic cassette tape, the same type that you would put in a cassette recorder. <laughs> That must be pretty entertaining if you actually take one of those old program ones and then put it into your stereo and then the noises that come out of that thing. <laughs> exactly. And it never had as much memory either. The original had 4K of memory. Uh, eventually, they expanded that up to 16K, but that was the most memory that you could ever get in a TRS-80 was 16K, so that was very limited. Now, it didn't have to deal with graphics, so it didn't necessarily need as much memory as some of the other computers, but still. That's a limited amount of memory. So the lack of expansion was 
kind of a problem. And then the third thing was the closed distribution system. Radio Shack, being a brand, wanted everything related to its computer to be under its own brand. They did not encourage third-party software development. If you wanted to get your software in a Radio Shack store, which is going to be the prime way that people see your stuff, you have to basically allow them to sell it under their own label and give up most of the profit, most of the rights to that piece of software to have the privilege of making it part of that Radio Shack system. So if you want software, you have to pretty much sign away rights so that Radio Shack is the distributor and they're the only distributor. Right, if you want it in the Radio Shack store. Now, they didn't have any lockout equipment or anything in the computer to prevent unauthorized software from working. It was still an open platform, and there were companies that did make some TRS-80 software, but it's just since the primary point of purchase for a TRS-80 was going to be in that Radio Shack store, if you didn't have your software in that Radio Shack store, the average customer may not have even been aware that it existed. And so, it also, like you said, it gives it an air of legitimacy because it's in that store, and Radio Shack is saying, here, here is software we know that works with our TRS-80, please buy it. Exactly, and most people didn't want to go through that. So the vast majority of the computer game companies that developed in the late 70s and early 80s very quickly moved on from the TRS-80 to embrace the Apple II. Many of them started on the TRS-80 with some of their very earliest products, but they very quickly moved on, especially as the business matured in the 70s. There was still a lot of a mail-order aspect to it, but as the business matured and more and more business was being done at retail instead of through mail order, it became important to get on the shelves. And of course, TRS-80s themselves were sold exclusively at Radio Shacks. You couldn't buy a TRS-80 in a computer land. So having TRS-80 software in a computer land made no sense because there's no TRS-80s in a computer land. Mm -hmm. So the only place that made sense to have Radio Shack software was in a Radio Shack store, and nobody wanted to jump through the hoops required to get in that Radio Shack store. So once you went to uh, transition from mail order to retail as being your primary source for selling software, nobody wanted to bother with a TRS-80. So it's a walled garden, and a lot of times with walled gardens, it works well for a while, but if enough people go, well, we can do things outside of this walled garden, and eventually that walled garden will wither and die. Exactly correct. So the main star of this early period from a computer game standpoint, even though it was not selling nearly as well, was that Apple II computer, especially after the release of the Apple II Plus in 1979, which incorporated much more memory, 48K, and was also optimized for use with the new Apple disk drive that had been released the year before, which was just a brilliant piece of engineering by Woz. Now, that added a lot more price to your Apple II because the disk drive was separate, and that was a $600 disk drive. Disk drives were expensive back then. That was actually a very reasonable price for a disk drive in 1977, floppy disk. Yeah, we're we're not talking hard drive here. We are talking a... Five and a quarter inch floppies, the giant big black ones that you might see that are sort of ubiquitous and they literally flop around. I even have a few left over here in my office. They're gigantic and they were prone to failure if you didn't treat them well. You had to be really careful with them, but they could store a decent amount of information 
and it's how you played games back then. Exactly, and they were so much better in, than cassettes in so many ways because, of course, a cassette was a serial medium. You had to play the tape to load a program, whereas a floppy disk is a random access system, and it can hold more, it's more durable, and just all around a better thing. So once the Apple II had a really great disk drive, the market in the United States very quickly moved to floppy disk as the prime medium for games. It's interesting, in Britain, that never happened. Really? Britain remained a cassette market throughout the 8-bit period. Hmm. There were a couple of reasons for that. One of the big ones is that because of the different economic conditions in Britain, where the earning power wasn't so great amongst the general populace, the computers needed to be a lot cheaper. And the computer accessories needed to be a lot cheaper. The, the whole cost thing pretty much necessitates that you have cheaper stuff and cassettes you could use for either recording your stuff or doing programs. And the other kind of bizarre thing is the main computer in Britain, and we won't get into this too much right now, but the main computer in Britain, the Sinclair uh, ZX Spectrum, Sinclair was a very idiosyncratic guy and... When he finally started incorporating disk drives in some of his later computers, he used his own proprietary format called the microdrive that just was god-awful and didn't work very well. So that kind of kept a lot of the market in cassettes even after the point where it would have made some more sense to transfer to floppy media. So for a variety of reasons, that market remained cassette-based. But in the United States, once that Apple II disk drive came out, it very much became a floppy disk market. And once that Apple II Plus came out, it really, with its 48K of memory, it really became an Apple II market in for the remainder of the 70s and, and into the early 80s. So we know that the Trash 80 just had ASCII graphics. We know that the Commodore PET also just had ASCII graphics. The Apple II is one that had actual what we would consider graphics. That's right. And this really went back to Steve Wozniak's love of arcade games and the little moonlighting job he did for Atari to create a prototype for the arcade game Breakout. Hmm. Steve Wozniak was an arcade game fanatic back in those days, and his partner at Apple, Steve Jobs, for a time worked at Atari as a technician. And so Jobs would often sneak Wozniak in at night so that Woz could get free play on some of the arcade games set up at Atari. Hmm. And that worked well for everybody. And when it came time for Atari to make the game Breakout, this uh, ball and paddle game in 1976 was coming at a time when ball and paddle games were kind of considered passe, and none of Atari's engineers actually wanted to work on the concept. Nolan Bushnell was convinced it would be a hit, though, so he wanted very much for this game to be made, and in fact it did end up being a hit. Uh, but since none of the engineers wanted to do it, they turned to the technicians hmm. and asked some of them if they wanted to do it. So Steve Jobs, even though he was not a game engineer, got to do the design on Breakout. But Steve Jobs didn't have the technical ability to do that. So he brought in Woz and had Woz design it for him. And it turns out that Atari did not use Woz's design. There were a couple of problems with it. One was that it was idiosyncratic and very hard to decipher and replicate for mass production. Woz was something of a genius. <laughs> he just thought differently than everybody else. He's still alive. I shouldn't use past tense, but he had a he was involved in an airplane crash in the early 80s. And there's kind of a sense that 
his mind was never quite as brilliant at working with some of these chips and circuits and whatnot after that. So mm-hmm. when I say he was a genius, I don't mean that in the sense that he died, but he did kind of get rewired a little bit <laughs> at one point. Mm. But he was just such a genius at working with chips and circuits that he created something so tight that it was very idiosyncratic and hard to reproduce. The other thing is, is that he had incorporated some elements that just wouldn't work in an arcade game at the time. He had used RAM, for instance, as part of the design, which couldn't really be used in arcade games at the time because of the expense and whatnot. So they didn't use his prototype, but he did do a prototype. And so that's kind of what inspired him to create what became the Apple II. He wanted to create a computer that could play a game of Breakout Hmm. with its multicolored bricks arrayed at the top and its paddle at the bottom and bouncing ball and all of that. So that's a big part of the reason why he incorporated graphics into that Apple II computer. And this is why the system was so much more sophisticated, but then at the same time also so much more expensive than the other members of the Trinity. Now, one thing he did not incorporate into the system that would have been very useful was sprites. Hmm. There are no sprites in the system. And how are sprites different from the other graphics? Well, a sprite is essentially, you could almost call it like a stamp that you put on the screen, essentially. Mm-hmm. In a bitmapped graphic display, which is what the Apple II had, basically every pixel on your screen is controlled individually. And that pixel will be either turned on or be turned off, or some combination thereof, in order to generate a color in that particular pixel. And then if you generate colors in enough pixels next to each other in a certain format, then, then you have a shape, then you have a graphic on the screen. So there's a good deal of control on the screen by using a bitmapped image, but it's not necessarily the best way to create something that's going to be moving around a lot. It's very good for creating static images, but it's not necessarily very good for creating something moving. So a sprite is kind of a predefined graphical element within the hardware that is independent of that bitmap screen and can be resized and recolored and manipulated separate from what's going on uh, with your background screen. And therefore, you can create objects that are easier to move rapidly. So if you're creating a game like a spaceship shooting game, it's much easier to have your spaceship be its predefined own thing than to try to tell the computer to rapidly redraw the bitmap in such a way that that spaceship is moving around the screen smoothly. So basically, a sprite is almost like its own separate bitmap at the screen, and you can move it around without redrawing the entire screen, which is what you have to do with a bitmapped image. Which takes time, and if you're trying to do something rapid, it's easier to do it that way. Exactly. So the, the lack of hardware sprites on the Apple II was a difficulty, to say the least, and it made it much harder to create anything on the screen that was a fast-paced action game. And this really influenced how kind of the Apple II software market developed and how Apple II game development progressed, because in order to do something complex with a lot of moving images moving very quickly, you needed a really hotshot programmer. Who made it really efficient because if you it, it takes a lot of processing power to redraw that image. And if you have to redraw the whole thing every single time, 
that's a lot, that's processor intensive. And back then, these processors can't go that fast. If you have a sprite that you can just go, okay, take sprite thing and move it up two pixels, then move it up two pixels. That's a lot easier for the computer to do and understand than having to redraw the whole screen every single time. Right. And one thing that many of the more advanced Apple II programmers figured out how to do, including one of the most celebrated at the time, Nasir Gabelli, was a technique called page flipping. Hmm. And I won't get too technical, mostly because I can't claim to be a great technical uh, guru myself. But basically, it was possible to poke two different areas of the Apple memory to generate the exact same screen. Mm-hmm. The exact same image on the screen. So you could do a technique called page flipping, where basically you you did a call to this spot on the memory, and it would generate image A. And then you could be also have a call ready to go to the other spot in memory and have the next image already rating in the background, both ready to go at the same time. And so you flip between them. You call to this spot, call to this spot, call to this spot, call to this spot, and rapidly switch between the two, which allowed you to do greater animation than if you could only go to one spot in the memory to to draw your screen on the Apple II. So it's almost like you have two separate things of memory for drawing the screen and you flip between the two of them. So Precisely. instead of just having a dedicated, okay, here's my video RAM of whatever it is, I'm going to have two times that where I'm going to have one that's displayed and while that one's being displayed, I'm going to build the other one up and then once that's ready, I can put that, show that, and then rebuild it on the other one mm-hmm. and just keep going back and forth. And that was a very key technique to doing animation and it wasn't the easiest thing in the world. So And not is... to mention it's uh, memory, it eats up memory by doing that. So then you have less memory to handle your game because you have to do twice the amount of video RAM. Right, and you see, the other thing that was very interesting is you bring up the video memory. The Apple II did something very interesting to make the... Uh, video memory essentially work. Mm -hmm. So the Apple II had a couple of different modes, but the main game mode was high-res mode, which allowed you to have a 280 by 192 display. Now that's pixels, which means you have 280 pixels across the screen and 192 pixels down the screen. 282 pixels per line, Horizontally, 192 pixels per line vertically, and then you multiply those two numbers together, and that's the total number of pixels you have on your screen. Right. The trade-off in video memory is always between your number of pixels and your number of colors, because color takes memory. Applying color to the more pixels you have, the more memory it takes to apply your colors to all of those pixels. And so generally speaking, the lower the resolution, the more colors you can have, and the higher the resolution, the fewer colors you can have with the same memory footprint. Right. So effectively, say you have, let's take an old style one, um, 640 by 480 resolution, which is not this generation, but for the sake of argument. And if I wanted to have, take maximum resolution there, take all 640 by 480, I need to have enough memory in order to address every single pixel. And then for every single pixel in that, I then have however many colors I'm going to do. Be that 8 colors, 16 colors, 32-bit colors, 128, 256. 
and then you start getting up in a really high color range mode, and then you can just imagine, just start multiplying those numbers together. 640 by 480, and then start multiplying that number by 8, 16, 256, 128, and you can just see how much RAM that's going to eat up. And if you have these really low memory systems, they can only handle so much, and you have to, not only can you need that stuff to display, you got to keep enough memory free to handle basic operations in the system, to run your game, to do all sorts of just make the computer go. So you got to be really limited here. And so you could have something that's really detailed with your graphics, but you might be limited to just black and white. Exactly. And to go into a little more detail, of course, you had all your talks about 8 and 16 and 32-bit, etc., the the reason that you go in those intervals is basically any individual bit is going to be set to either an on state or an off state, one or zero. And therefore, a single bit can contain two colors, essentially, mm -hmm. an on color and an off color. So if you have one bit, then you have two colors. Then if you dedicate two bits to graphics, you can... It, it doubles, essentially, mm -hmm. the amount of colors you can have. So then you go from those two colors on and off to four colors. Then if you devote a third bit to graphics, you it doubles again. And every time you add a bit to your graphics capability, it doubles the number of graphics you can have. Right. So 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64, 128, 256, 512, 1024, so on and so forth. Exactly. So in the case of the Apple II, the high-res mode was a 280 by 192 screen, and it allowed for a maximum of six colors. So in order to get six colors, it means you have to dedicate three bits to every pixel because of that doubling effect. Two bits only gets you four colors. Three bits gets you a maximum of eight colors. Mm -hmm. But in this case, we've only got six. So why didn't they use the last two bits? So that's where the clever trick comes in. And that's how they actually got the system to be far more efficient than it otherwise would be. If you were actually devoting three bits to each pixel mm -hmm. times that resolution, that would take you to 20K of memory to control the entire screen. Hmm. And an Apple II Plus only had 48K of memory. So you're taking about half of it. Which is impossible. It's just not possible because it doesn't leave you enough left to do anything interesting because, of course, there's also some other stuff that's reserved for the system that takes up some of that memory. And so you're, you're taking just half of it just to show anything. Right. That's impossible. So he didn't do that. And that's why it's six colors and not eight colors because he did not do three bits per pixel. He hmm. did one bit per pixel. And what he did is he made it so that what color your individual picture was was determined by the color of the pixels around you. It had a system where if pixel above you is X color, then you are X color. If pixel above you is not, then you're this color. You see, it was based entirely on what was going on around you. And that saved bits. You, you, you may recall uh, from your Apple II how if you have like a vertical white line, mm -hmm. that line is not white. That line has... Some parts that are white, some parts that are pink. It's not a plain white line. You you recall that from your Apple II days? Not necessarily, but I do remember there being weird graphical oddities at times. Right, and the reason that those white lines, narrow white lines, were multicolored 
is because if you only had one a line that was one pixel across it didn't trip the necessary pixels around it in order to keep that white line solid. I won't get into the technical details, both both because I couldn't explain it very well anyway, and because that's kind of getting too far into the weeds for what we're doing. But essentially, it doesn't have all that line doesn't have all the information it needs because of how narrow it is to maintain a white line all the way down. And what I'll do is I'll, I do recall in the past seeing a few videos about how sprites work and how... Uh, some of the Apple stuff work. And in the show notes, I'll see if I can find some of this stuff to try and, if you're interested in seeing more about how this works, you can check the show notes and I should have some videos in there that go into more detail and give some visual representation of how this stuff works. Right. So it was an absolutely brilliant way to get color on a fairly high-resolution screen. And the Apple II had a much higher-resolution well, not much higher. The Apple II had a higher resolution, high-res graphic mode than any of its competitors for several years, just for the very reason that it devoted less memory to upkeep of that high resolution. And it's all because Steve Wozniak was able to think outside the box, literally, instead of just, okay, we know the math says this, but if I take these certain limitations, and I know I'm going to have this, and I know I'm going to have this other thing, then... I can do more with less as given that other thing stay stable. So I imagine this might have caused some problems between iterations of the Apple where you have more memory, but then it has to take advantage or say the screen gets bigger and the thing has to take advantage of that. And so they have to update how that thing works. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of locked in and six colors, while it was very impressive at a time when your two competitors only had character graphics, was within a couple of years not very impressive at all. Six colors was very puny. However, on the flip side, it had a higher resolution. So, And they were there first. And they were there first. So there you have it. So that was kind of the interesting quirk about the way the Apple II did graphics. So it really took a hotshot programmer to really figure out how to use this idiosyncratic display and how to get a fast-moving, heavily animated game working when you essentially had to redraw the entire screen, even if all you wanted to do was change the position of one little laser blast that's like three pixels long or something like that. You would have to redraw the entire screen to do that because there were no sprites. Yep, and so just think of that. You got the flipping going on. You have how this memory is being accessed. There's a lot of little neat little tricks going on here in order to make the thing work well, and all because the thing has very limited memory, because memory is expensive. Exactly, and that's why the programmer was king, and the programmer was king for a long time, because it wasn't enough to be able to just come up with a kind of half-decent idea. If you could not program really, really well, no matter how good your idea was, it just wasn't going to work. And it's not so much as well as just efficiently. Exactly. And knowing how to do little tricks and just thinking outside the box with how math works in order to accomplish what you're trying to do and go, okay, I am limited to this amount of memory. What little tricks can I do in order to be more and more efficient so that I can just go and do this thing? You see this with the Atari and Pac-Man. The amount of things going on there is too much for the Atari to handle. And the reason you see the flickering going on, we've gone over this before, is because they're doing little tricks in order to flip which screen is showing what at what time in right. order to take advantage of how the system works. Right, exactly correct. 
And if, when you talk to old time, old school programmers today, most of them lament how wasteful code is today mm. because there really aren't realistic memory restrictions anymore on what we code. Because by the time you've hit the wall on your memory restrictions, you've probably already exceeded your target system in, in other ways. I mean, right. there's really no real restriction on the kind of software that we sell commercially in terms of how many lines of code you can have in it anymore. And right. so they really lament kind of the wasteful way the code is written today because back in the day you were counting every byte and you were using every trick in the book to make your programs more impressive than the limited amount of memory would allow. Yeah, with our games now, you have, they just go, oh, well, we can just throw this really high-end, inefficient 3D model in there, even though we didn't optimize it, it'll work fine. And then sometimes they actually throw so much of that stuff in there that it actually isn't fine, and then they have to go back afterwards and optimize it so that the game works in a patch. Right. So you can sort of see that today, where people just take the fact that computers are so powerful now that they can just handle so much, but usually dev people who are making games for systems now usually have higher-end PCs than the typical consumer gamer has. And the reason we have a lot of problems on our standard hardware is they're just so inefficient that our systems can't handle it, even though there's nothing really technically special about that program that's running. It's just so inefficient that it just can't, effectively run on our systems anymore and that's why we have to have higher end systems in order to match what the developers are doing because they were so wasteful and if they had someone who was going through and going okay let's be a little more efficient here let's make get this bright size down it doesn't need to take up this much memory let's just have it down to this size because that's all we need and let's just have the sorting algorithm instead of it being so wasteful with memory. Let's do it this way and have it be much more efficient and faster. And a lot of games would, frankly, be better. We're looking at you, Arkham Knight PC port. Yeah, that would be a good <laughs> example right there. <laughs> so this led, like I said, to the programmer being king on the Apple II system. It was the hotshot programmers that had the best games, the most successful games. Bill Budge, who created Raster Blaster and Pinball Construction Set. Nasir Gabelli, who created a bunch of fast-paced, well-animated action games. These were the guys that were the most successful. Ken Williams at Sierra, who came up with the brilliant way of putting graphics into text adventures, which was, instead of storing the graphics on the disk, for which there would never be enough space for, to just store the commands to draw the graphics on the screen, so that all you had was a few lines of code on the disk that would suddenly turn into a full picture when interpreted by the Apple II. These were the guys that were successful, and these were the companies that became successful. Sierra became successful because of Ken Williams and his graphics drawing ability. Sirius Software became successful because Nasir Gabelli was a programming god. Bruderbund became successful because they found some hotshot programmers over in Japan that created some really great software on that Apple II. And these were the companies that grew to be big in this early era because these were the guys that knew how to program. And it also made the games much more idiosyncratic. Because when you have sprites in a system, the games are mostly going to be built the same way. That doesn't mean that one programmer can't come up with some tricks that the other doesn't. But sprites 
are predefined in terms of how big they can be, how many colors they can be, how they move around the screen. How many sprites you can have. How many sprites you can have. So the games become very similar because everyone's kind of starting from a common place with their sprites. Whereas when you have just this bitmap screen where you're only control of the screen is what pixels you're turning on and off at any given time, everyone was kind of coming up with their own tricks and the games in certain ways were a lot more distinctive. And in some ways that led to a lot more variety. You kind of find that when you have a sprite-based system that games start to all kind of fall into just a couple of different genres that that system does very well. And this this extends to consoles, too, almost all of which had sprites. Yeah, think of the original Nintendo. That is a sprite-based system. All your platformers looked a lot like Mario. All of your shooters looked the same kind of way. And what was unique about the PC games of the era was if I had to come up with a completely different way of doing graphics, that can be unique to me as a person and individually and it might be next to impossible for anyone else to replicate that. Exactly. So that was a very different era, and in some ways it even kind of encouraged more experimentation and more innovation. A lot of times when people talk about, complain about how all Nintendo games look the same or all Commodore 64 games look the same, it's because these are sometimes people that grew up with these more idiosyncratic systems that allowed for a lot greater range of expression and with a certain knowledge point just think back to some of the apple II games that you would play there's some graphics that are done on the apple II that i think the nintendo couldn't do mm -hmm. and it's all because they were able to do things different exactly so that's kind of where the apple II came along and how the apple II took control and the apple II remained kind of the primary game platform through the early 1980s. Apple II's finally started to get more penetration in this period for a couple of reasons. Obviously, over time, the price comes down a little bit, though the Apple II still remained a very pricey system. Mm -hmm. But the main thing was is that the Apple II became a prime system for business. And the reason for that is it is the first system that got VisiCalc. Ah, and once you have a spreadsheet program, business loves you to death. Because if you have a spreadsheet program that has formulas that you can just update one thing and it updates all of the cells based on this one thing that changes, you don't have to have armies of accountants with ledgers that go, oh, we have to change this one thing. Now we have to cascade this down. Now I need to hand this off to employee two to double check my math and make sure I covered everything correctly. It was almost a fluke that the Apple II got it because when the guy that created it came in to, to use the computers at, at the company that uh, ended up putting it out, they only had one Apple II. Most of their computers were other systems like Commodore systems and whatnot. But the Apple II, because the Apple II was less popular, the Apple II was the only computer that was currently not in use. So that's the computer they had him write the program on. <laughs> <laughs> so pure fluke that made it so popular. Exactly. And obviously VisiCal came out on all the other systems then too, but it came out on the Apple II first. And if it, and its history had gone a little bit different with that company, then... It could have been some other one that became the prominence. And you see, as, as I alluded to before, at the time, it was the CPM-based systems, uh, CPM being an Intel and Z80-based operating system, whereas the Apple was a 6502 system. Mm -hmm. 
it was so CPM couldn't run on an Apple. It was the CPM systems that had become the standard for business, again, because CPM was the first operating system that was compatible on a lot of different systems and could control a disk drive that was released. And so because of that, all the disk-based programs came out for CPM, and if you're a business, you need disks rather than cassettes because cassettes are way too unreliable if you're trying to store your business documents because they can drop data very easily while they're trying to write. Hmm. So... Through this chain of events, CPM was the business standard. And now you had VisiCalc that was threatening to create a different business standard on the Apple II. But then the expandability comes in again. Hmm. Because what happened next is that somebody actually created an expansion board for the Apple II that had a Z80 processor in it. <laughs> and so you could switch to a Z80 mode hmm. And then run CPM stuff on your Apple II in Z80 mode, almost like I mean, we do it in software today, but almost like switching your computer between Windows and, and Linux as, as operating systems, except right. this is hardware instead of software. Right, or, or just emulating uh, other hardware. So it, sort of like how you run an emulator on your system in order to run an Apple II, you can right. do that now. Exactly, except in this case, you actually had to have the physical processor in your Apple to be able to switch over because you didn't have enough memory running around to emulate a whole other system on top of a system. But because of the Apple's expandability, that was possible. So you had VisiCalc, plus you could buy one of these expansion boards and run all your CPEM stuff. And so the Apple became the business machine, and that's when sales took off. So in the early 80s, the Apple computer did eclipse the Trash 80. It did eclipse what Commodore was doing, and it became more widespread. And, of course, it already had a lot of developers, and it had the games, so it became the prime game platform as well. Though, really, it shouldn't have. Yeah, it sounds like it's just sort of a fluke and luck of the draw. Mm -hmm. Since the Apple II came out in the 70s, why did it maintain the throne in the 80s i would think other people would come out with hardware that and newer computers that would dethrone it eventually at least for gaming you would think so and and the answer to that is quite frankly that better platforms did come out mm -hmm. that should have overthrown it and they quite frankly didn't because of a wide variety of reasons that were mostly business reasons hmm. so in 1979 Apple II comes out in 77. Right. 1979, Atari enters the computer business. Basically what happened is they created the VCS, which was released in 1977. At the old console. Exactly. The development team immediately started working on the successor because they knew the VCS was a primitive system, even primitive for the time. As we've talked about before, it had 128 bytes of RAM. Bytes. And that, even, that K, even, even in 1977, that was ludicrous. I mean, the TRS-80 and the Commodore PET didn't have huge amounts of memory, but they still had 4K. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Since the Atari VCS used cartridge as a medium, it meant that you didn't need quite as much memory in a console because you had instant load. Right. But still, 128 bytes was pathetic. So they knew that that was not going to last very long. They figured it had a two to three lifespan, year lifespan at most. So they started working on the successor. But then when this home computer thing started becoming big, management slowly altered that project to where it became a strictly computer project. First, they split it. They said, make two. We'll make one a computer, one a game system. Then from there, they went, okay, we're going to keep it split in two, but we're going to make one a high-end computer and one a low-end computer. And they never got around to making one that was just a console. 
Hmm. So the Atari 8-bit computers, the 400 and the 800, the 800 being the more capable system, 400 being the less capable system, started out from the perspective of being video game systems and then evolved into computers. Hmm. So they were optimized to play games from the start because they started as game systems. They had sprites. They had a very fine, for the time, sound chip. And it also displayed a lot more colors than an Apple II because they had a guy leading the chip design named Jay Miner who was an absolute genius. Hmm. Now, the resolutions were different. They did have a high-res mode, and their high-res mode was actually higher than the Apple II's. The Apple II had a high-res mode of 280 by 192, whereas the Atari 800, 320 by 192, but only monochrome because they didn't do the same tricks. However, they had a 160 by 96 mode that was still a very competitive mode for the time with 128 colors. Which is a lot of colors. Apple only has six. So they're blowing away the competition on colors still at a reasonably good resolution. Mm -hmm. Plus they have sprites. Plus they have a good sound chip, which the Apple II really didn't. Mm Mm-hmm. Though, again, there were third-party add-ons that added better sound, (laughs) because Apple can do that. It didn't ship with as much memory. It only shipped with 16K kind of as a base, but you could expand it up to 48. So you could have the same amount of memory. You could have more colors. You could have sprites. And you could have better sound. So it was a great system, and it only cost a 1000 bucks. I say only, but that's a lot better than Apple II. Well, with the Apple II still running... The well, you know, the 15? Apple II is 1,200, but then you add a disk drive to it, it's more like 1,800 or something like that. And the Atari system is just chipping for 1,000. So it's it's doing a little better. It's still expensive, but it's much better. Even the base unit is less than the other base unit. Exactly. Plus, it accepts cartridges. So it's got a di- it accepts disks as well, but it accepts cartridges. Because it's a game system, so it's got a real plug-and-play capability that, again, is useful for that younger or less tech-savvy set that is very intimidated by powering on a computer and seeing a blinking cursor stare right back at them. You can load cartridges, and then it works just like a video game system where you plug and play, quite literally. Why didn't the Atari 800 take over the game market? Because Atari completely and utterly dropped the ball. Wow. They didn't know what they wanted their computer to be, and they wanted to keep complete control. Warner, which was the parent company at Atari at this point, was a media company. Warner Music, Warner Brothers. Those were the two. They had other subsidiaries, but those were the two big ones. Mm -hmm. They didn't make the movie projector. They didn't make the record player. They made the movie. They made the film. Mm -hmm. They were only interested in hardware as a vehicle to sell software. This is why the video game industry was such a great match for them when they purchased Atari. Obviously, in the case of Atari, they're making the system and they're making the games, but the system is the entry into the software. Now, contrary to popular belief, Atari was making huge margins on the hardware. The idea of selling a console at cost or at a loss and making all your money on software was still far in the future. Atari was actually making money on everything. Hmm. But even though they were making money on hardware, the big margins were in the software. So hardware was incidental to selling software. Warner wanted to build the Atari VCS to sell software, and Warner wanted to build the Atari 800 to sell software. They wanted no one else on that system. Oh, dear. 
they did not release technical documentation on how the system worked. And there were a lot of custom chips in it. It was 6502 based, but the graphics and sound chips were both custom chips. So it's not like you could just buy a manual, a generic manual out there in the world and then apply that. The only way to figure out what an Atari 800 did was to literally poke every register and see what happens. Yeah, and just think about it today. If you had anyone who put out a platform and they didn't allow third party to go in, it fails. They're pretty much things live and die, especially in the video game industry, on third party. What other people can go and say, that's cool that you came out with this piece of hardware that does this stuff. I have this brilliant idea taking advantage of this stuff here, and it could be stuff that you didn't even think about. You can think about that with Nintendo and Rare. You can think about that with a whole bunch of different companies out there. Exactly. And it wasn't a closed system. Anyone who wanted to program on it was welcome to. But if you didn't know what the calls did... (laughs) You're not going to use it. Exactly. And of course, eventually, the better programmers figured it out. So Atari 800 software started to appear in small quantities kind of in the tail end of 1980 and the beginning of 1981. But very little third-party software developed, and Atari did not have the in-house staff at the beginning to completely fill the void themselves. I've talked to two prominent people within Atari software, both the director of software for the home computer division, John Powers, and then I forget what the other guy's title was. It was something to do with tools or whatnot. I'd, I'd have to look, but basically... One of the guys serving one level below him, Ken Balthaser, who went on to have a long and distinguished career in the video game industry. And both of them said it was nuts. Atari was growing so fast that most of their time was spent trying to hire programmers and integrate them into into what Atari was doing. And there was comparably little time to flood the market with software. So Atari couldn't supply enough software all by itself. And so the system is pretty much hobbled at the start of its launch. And if it's hobbled at its launch, where... They're not putting out the software. Atari's not putting out the software. And they don't put the documentation out there so that the average programmer or the low-end programmer can't use the system. And you have to rely on these rock star programmers in order to code on it that are willing to spend the time to learn it. And even if you have a, a rock star programmer, if I'm a company with that and I go... Do I want my Rockstar programmer to dedicate three, six, nine months to understanding how this system works that may or may not net me money versus having him go and develop on systems that are already out there? It's a no-brainer. I'm going to have my Rockstar programmer working on software that's going to make me money. Exactly. And that basically hamstrung them. Eventually, they wised up and they made technical information more available and this and that. But by then... It's too late. It's too late. Other platforms were starting to appear. And then, of course, Atari entered its financial difficulties. We discussed in a previous episode how kind of 1983 was really the last chance for the Atari 8-bit with some newer models than this, because they released newer models, for the Atari 8-bit to take on all comers and rise to the top of the industry. But this was the exact moment where they were having all their financial difficulties, and by that point, they couldn't get their products to market, and so Commodore wiped the floor with them with the Commodore 64. So there were just a succession of errors at Atari that prevented that system. That system should have been the dominant computer game platform of 79 or really it's shipped in late 79 so let's call it 80 81 82 it should have been a big thing for the early 80s 
And instead, while it wasn't a flop, it really didn't take over from the Apple II as the prime Well, it's so hobbled, you can't. You got the Rockstar programmer going, I can make all this great stuff with established Apple II, and I don't even know whether or not this Atari 800 is going to survive. Exactly. So that was it for Atari. Commodore comes back in, and Commodore makes a little system called the VIC-20. Hmm. And they basically made this system because they were scared to death. Jack Trammell specifically was scared to death of the Japanese. The Japanese had come in during this time period. There was a lot of Japanophobia in the United States and a lot of Japan bashing. Really? Well, one by one, Japan had kind of taken over a lot of different American industries because they were able to basically undercut American companies on price while still making products that were very high quality and very reliable. And they did this in steel. Mm -hmm. They did this in automobiles. Mm -hmm. They did this in semiconductor memories, RAM. They did this in consumer electronics, televisions, stereos, etc. And a little later, they didn't do it in this period, but in the late 80s, of course, they did it with video game systems, Hmm. with the NES and the Sega. Jack Trammell was scared to death that the Japanese were going to do the same thing in computers. And they never did. There was never a Japanese takeover of the computer industry like there was anywhere else. And Jack Trammell probably played a large role in that. Because what he did is he went and made a rock-bottom computer that could sell for next to nothing and prevent the Japanese from gaining toehold. And the reason he was able to do this is we talked about the 6502 processor earlier that was in the Apple II. It was also in the Atari VCS. Uh, version of it was in the Commodore 64, a version of it was in the uh, NES, was in all of these systems. The company that made the 6502, Moss Technologies, was owned by Commodore. Hmm. So Commodore had vertical integration. Commodore was making money selling Apple and Atari, all of their 6502s, and they could provide themselves 6502s at cost. (laughs) I'm not sure if they did provide them to themselves at cost or if they did some stuff on the books other than that. But the point is, they could give themselves 6502 processors really cheaply. Yeah. And so he created a system called the VIC-20. Now, is that before the 64 or is that after? This is before. Okay. Yeah, we're not there yet. This system uh, was released in early 1981. VIC-20 was the first computer to ever sell one million systems. First wow. microcomputer. And it did it because it only cost 300 bucks. And then as price wars continued, uh, it at its lowest point, it was down to $99. Imagine that. When you're talking about back in that era when you had Apple IIs that cost 1000 to $2,000, you had the Atari coming out with a $1,000 computer, Everything's about a thousand to two thousand dollars, and then you have Commodore come out here with, pow, computer, three hundred dollars. That's a fifth of the price. Exactly. Now, of course, it was a more limited system. Yes, they could save some money because they gave themselves their own processor, but it was a very limited system compared to the competition. So it only had five K of RAM. Some of that was reserved by the system. So only three and a half of that K could actually be used by a programmer. So it, it had drastically less RAM than an Apple II. Exactly. It also could only display 16 colors at its kind of primary resolution, 176 by 184. So it was lower resolution and fewer colors than the Atari 800. It's uh, lower resolution, but more colors than the Apple II. Hmm. So this was a very limited system. And it because there was so little RAM, 
even though it had a cassette and a floppy storage, it was really a cartridge-based system. Hmm. Because you can get away with less RAM when you have a cartridge-based system because your cartridge has a lot of ROM. A lot of ROM compared to a floppy disk or a cassette. Right. So this system was kind of okay for games and certainly sold like hotcakes. But nobody other than Commodore really made games for it because it was such a limited system. Hmm. So it you was don't somewhat... have the third party that we were talking about before. Exactly. So it was a hugely successful system, but it didn't pull developers off of the Apple II. Hmm. So it doesn't have the staying power. Exactly. So Atari just screws up by not making their system open. Commodore doesn't screw up because the VIC-20 is very successful. You can't call that a screw up. But they deliberately choose to target a portion of the market that the majority of third-party game developers just aren't interested in touching. Hmm. So Commodore doesn't, at this point, supplant the Apple, so the Apple keeps on rolling. Texas Instrument also gets into the market, and they essentially do Commodore one better. They take a similar approach. Let's make something cheaper and let's make something less intimidating by making it cartridge-based so you don't have that blinking cursor come up. And let's make something relatively cheap, but let's pump a little more power into it. So TI comes out with a system, the TI-99 4A. Mm-hmm. It's the 4A because in 1979 they had attempted to release something called the TI-99, and it was a disaster. So they went back to the drawing board on it, and they came back and made this TI-99 4A. It has a few th- interesting things going on. It's a 16-bit processor. Mm-hmm. Texas Instrument is the first company to embrace a 16-bit processor. It only has 16K of RAM, so not as much as your Apple and Atari systems. But because it has cartridges as its only, in this case, storage medium, Mm -hmm. it can get away with having just 16K of RAM and still basically be as functional as an Apple computer with 48K of RAM because you just don't need as much. They're taking advantage of the fact of if we take these things and we know that we have these constraints, we don't have to have it as so versatile as we would have to otherwise. We know these are the restraints, therefore we can take advantage of things. Right. So, I mean, it's still less memory, but it's it's not as bad as it sounds. Now, it doesn't have the graphical capabilities of the Atari 800. Atari is just so far ahead of everybody on colors because J Minor is a friggin' genius. <laughs> and But it's still got a nice 192 by 256 display, which isn't bad, and it can do 16 color graphics. So yeah. that's that's very serviceable. And it's only $525, still more expensive than a VIC-20. But when you take into account the VIC-20's far more limited feature set, that's pretty nice. Mm -hmm. So the TI-99-4A is definitely something that could have been a contender. Mm. But Texas Instrument went the closed system route. (laughs) You see, they were seeing a meeting point of video games and computers the ti system even though they put out some productivity software and education software and whatnot really feels more like a video game system i mean it only takes cartridges hmm. and it's got high quality video and whatnot so i think even though ti was not a video game company i think they must have gotten kind of sucked into that video game idea again i mean cartridges are more expensive right so if you're making your system cartridge based only 
you have to make your money on the hardware and the software because it's it's so much more expensive. So they don't want other companies cutting in and into those software profits. Mm -hmm. And so they made it a closed system. And so that killed them. Other things killed them, too. There was a price war with the Commodore 64 that was the, the real death knell. But, but that's later. Yeah, that's later. So it couldn't make as much headway because it's closed, it closed system. system and we've already established closed system. You don't get the third parties. You're not going to be successful. Right. So the Apple II just keeps rolling along, roll, rolling along, rolling along until finally the Commodore 64 arrives. And that's the system that finally kills it because Commodore 64 is, again, it's the same price as a TI 9948. It's $595. But it has, as the name implies, 64K of RAM. Which is significantly more. It only does 16 colors, but it's at 320 by 200. So now we're getting up to Apple II levels of resolution with far more colors than an Apple II. Not as many colors as an Atari, but still. You we're can doing do a lot with well 16 there. colors. Exactly. It has one of the most amazing sound chips ever created. The oh, SID yeah. chip is just phenomenal. There's a version of uh, a few video games that were ported over. Uh, one of the ones that I have, Platoon, that's on the NES. Platoon is also on the Commodore 64, and there are sounds that are on the Commodore 64 for that game that blow the Nintendo out of the water. Absolutely. It was just so far ahead of its time. And in fact, some of the people that developed that SID chip went on to found a little company called Insonic, hmm. which was a very, very big in computer sounds. So, I mean, these guys knew what they were doing. And it, again, it was that advantage that Commodore had of owning its own chip development company that could come up with some of these amazing chips like the SID. So it had that amazing sound. It had all that memory. It had a cartridge port, so it had the plug-and-play feature that was yep. nice. Plus, it also had a disk drive that was an abomination, but it was a disk drive. Why was it an abomination? Very, very slow. Oh. And when I say very, very slow, I mean it makes very, very slow look slow or look fast. Oh, right. I remember because I had one, and I remember how this worked. I get home from school. I go downstairs. I turn on the Commodore 64. I type in this thing that Dad wrote out that loads up my video game, and it goes, loading, please wait. I go upstairs and have dinner. I go down, and it still says, loading, please wait. Then I go back, go look at the cartoons for half an hour. I come back downstairs. Oh, my game's loaded. Yeah. Very, very slow. The computer game company Epix made a boatload of money by releasing an add-on called the Fast Loader that I don't know exactly how it worked, but it basically made a Commodore disk drive load faster. And they <laughs> sold hundreds of thousands of them because, oh my God. <laughs> there was a reason behind this. Right. So now you have a fully featured system that is optimized for fast-paced games with sprites and all of that. It's got great amount of memory. It's got a decent resolution. It's got decent colors. It's got great sound. It even has a few interesting peripherals, too. You had a couple of different joysticks that could plug into it. Mm -hmm. You even had a light pen that I recall playing around with this thing. Mm -hmm. And it's much cheaper at this point than an Apple II. $600 for probably, I think, the base system and a monitor. Yep. And it gets even cheaper. It gets cheaper over time because then Jack Trammell does a couple of things. He instigates a price war to drive TI out of the industry. Mm -hmm. And he gets into mass market retailers, which computers were generally before that only sold in specialty stores. 
Atari did have a deal with Sears that got Atari computers into certain Sears stores, not all of them, but some of them. But in general, you weren't in mass market retailers. Jack Trammell got computers into mass market retailers. Which uh, retailers? Kmart was the big one. It wasn't the only one he was in, but Kmart was the big one. Okay. And so he was getting that computer in front of a larger audience. He was cutting the price. He just came to dominate. And so the Commodore 64 then became the dominant platform. Apple didn't go away, obviously. Right. Apple IIs continued to be released, and you know they came out with the 2E that added more features, added more memory, and certain other features. And so, and of course, the price came down because the technology is getting older. So Apple remained in the market, and there were still games released on the Apple II, but it once, wasn't so dominant. It didn't have like a ninety percent share. It had more even. Right. Well, and then the Commodore 64 surpassed it. You know, over right. time. Once the Commodore 64 had basically wiped out most of the competition in the price wars of 1983-1984, the Commodore 64 was kind of the dominant computer game platform and remained that way until IBM PCs finally started entering the home as opposed to the office in large numbers at the end of the 1980s. Then to the 90s. Right. Wow. And thus, the Holy Trinity and its disciples. Exactly. So that's that's basically the story of how you got from 1977 to to 1983 in the home computer world and how you kind of had Apple dominating the beginning and then kind of giving way to Commodore at, at the end of that period. And then Commodore on to the IBM. Exactly. Well, that is quite the story. Anything else you want to cover on this? I think that about does it. All right. What will we be doing in the next episode? Well, now that we've given a uh, history of kind of the early computers, which just by the very nature of where and how the computer developed is a very U.S.-centric history. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably time to look at the early history of computers from a different perspective and see what was going on during a similar period in Europe. Because as we alluded to a little earlier in this episode, Europe developed in a very different and very idiosyncratic way with a set of computers in the United Kingdom that were much more limited in capability but also in a way became much more mainstream and Hmm. so whereas in the united states home computers kind of had their brief shining moment in the sun between the crash of the atari market and the revival of the console market through nintendo the united kingdom was a computer gate based market for children playing arcade-style games, you know, action games, the Mm -hmm. kind of games you would find on the NES in the United States, all the way through to the end of the 1980s and even into the early 1990s. That was not a console-based market. It was a home computer-based market. And that is so completely different from the U.S. experience that I think would be very useful to kind of compare and contrast those markets and explain why the U.K. developed in such a different manner. And then also the UK, did that the same story happen as well as for the rest of Europe? Well, basically, the computers coming out of the UK were the computers that then dominated okay. the rest of Western Europe as well. So, so, so it, it's the genesis point, sort of like the United States has its genesis yeah. point. Well, I should say the computers coming out of the UK plus the Commodore 64. Okay. Uh, which was the one computer from the United States that really kind of stuck in the 8-bit British market. So there really weren't native computer platforms of any consequence being developed in places like Spain, France, or Germany, though there were certainly several computer game companies that developed in those nations. 
Alright, well, we'll go over that and more next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rollum Music found at freemusicarchive.org used under a Creative Commons attribution license.